Philippians chapter 4 is where we'll be. We'll look at verses 10 uh, through 23 this morning. Uh, this past summer, I, was, I got to uh, take a trip to California on a plane, and I've been on planes before. Um, but this time in particular, I was kind of amazed at, at kind of what I saw with people around me and really the lack of amazement of being on a plane. Like, I don't know if you've ever had a moment where you're like, wait a minute, I'm up in the air right now. If you've ever been on a plane, you're like, this doesn't make sense. I shouldn't be on this machine that's up in the air, soaring higher than a bird and faster than any animal on, that walks or flies in, in this world. It doesn't make sense to me. So I'm looking around. I'm thinking, okay, man, I am 40,000 feet up from the ground. We're flying at 500 miles per hour, and I'm going to be in California in not days, not in a covered wagon, but in a matter of hours. But what amazed me even more than that was I was looking around, and no one else was thinking that. And I could tell because what were they doing? Well, the, the, the pilot's going over through all the details, and then the stewardess is going over all the details. Okay, this is what happens if we crash, and wear this thing, and put this mask, and put it on your friend, and you know all these kind of things. And so, but but what, what happens is everyone's looking at their phones, and they say, make sure you cut off all your electronic devices. No one does it. And the stewardess walks by, and they go like this, or they put it underneath their jacket or whatever. But then as soon as the stewardess walks by, they pull it back out. And then what happens is, even when the plane is taking off, and so whatever this interference could be, we're all going to die, and that's gonna, all going to be our fault eventually, right? But what happens, everybody takes off, everyone's still on their phones, you've done it too, don't lie, taken off, and then what happens when it, we finally get out of service, everybody's like, oh, like, they should make these better, like, right? That's what everybody's thinking. And then... Everyone is desperate to get on. Everyone's desperate for the screens to come on so they can watch their on-flight movie. Everyone's desperate to connect and reconnect. And then what happens when we land? Everyone right away pulls out their phone. There's no, thank God, this only took a few hours. Thank God we didn't crash. It's like, oh my gosh, I got to reconnect. I got to check my email. I got to check my text. Some people get on the phone. They start talking on the runway. They talk really loud. They're holding up the line. You're upset at them. And so like all these things are happening and there's no sense of like, man, I'm in California. That's on the other side of the country. I'm here in a matter of hours, safely. I can still walk on my two feet, and I'm now in California soil. Like, it doesn't register with us. Like, it's somehow, it's not enough because we want everything to happen instantly. And it happens even in our culture. Our culture sells us this thing. You've got to have what you want, and you have to have it now. I mean, think about it this way. We used to rent movies from Blockbuster. And when we go in, we rent a movie, and the worst thing in the world that could ever happen to us was we would go in, the movie is not there. And so what we have, we go up to the front, Blockbuster, they would check on the computer, well, it was last rented, it was, oh, it was rented last night. I hate this person who rented this movie. How dare them? Now I have to wait for them to return it. Do you know what it's supposed to return? Well, hopefully three days. They don't return it. Three days. You've got to wait. And you're angry at this unknown person. And that's what now, what has changed is we don't have to do any of that anymore. We don't have to get out of our cars. We can go on Amazon Prime and rent a movie. And then what happens? What's the worst thing that can happen then? It doesn't buffer the right way. It doesn't speed up. We're connected to not-so-sudden link, and we can't get on, and we can't figure out what's happening. Why can't we get on this? What's going on? Let's keep hitting the thing. Why does the pinwheel show up? Why is it going? What's happening? And so we get wound up because we think we should have what we want right now. And the craziest thing is, no matter what 
our culture gives us, no matter what technological advances that we have, it says you can have things as quick as you want them, and it's going to satisfy you. It somehow doesn't seem to deliver, does it? It never seems fast enough, does it? It never seems good enough, does it? And it's interesting, as fast as we have things, as much as we have things at our access, we're more bored than we've ever been. And we're actually more depressed than we've ever been. Depression is at an all-time high in our country. Major depression cases in America are climbing rapidly. According to a 2018 study of medical claims by the health insurance group Blue Cross and Blue Shields, they said there's a, there's a report titled Major Depression, the Impact on Overall Health. They found that diagnosis of major depression swelled by, listen to this, 33% between 2013 and 2016. This is based on data, data from more than 41 million Blue Cross and Blue Shield members. The total of commercially insured Americans suffering from major depression has topped 9 million, according to the research. Depression rates were highest among young people, leaping by 63% for teenagers and 47% for millennials. The rate were almost uh, twice as high among women as men. And the study went on to say, we are concerned that depression rates are continuing to accelerate And we need to uh, do more work to identify the underlying cause. Friends, the underlying cause is the gospel. But isn't that sobering? We have more opportunities to be comforted and distracted than we've ever had before. However, we are more depressed than we've ever been, and we're more bored than we've ever been. And I think part of the problem is, is we strive to grab this thing that culture claims that it's easy to get. We try to grab this thing called contentment. The sermon that we hear every time we open up our computer or every time we turn on the television is once you have this, you will be satisfied. Once you have this, everything will start to make sense. Once you have this, everything will make you happy. But it doesn't deliver. Maybe we do get that thing and what is that? it does, it brings satisfaction for a short period of time, and then it becomes obsolete. So the question is, what is the secret of contentment? Is it something that we can even have? How is it that we can war against this destructive drive to want more things that won't fulfill us? Well, interestingly enough, that's what we are going to see this morning in Philippians chapter 4. Now, here's why this is so important for us this morning. Because if we don't learn, as a church, the secret of contentment, we will never be as generous as God has designed us to be. We'll always think of ourselves, and we'll always want to get things for ourselves versus how God wants us to live in a way that we take what he's given us to bless others and further the gospel. In other words, if Integrity Church becomes full of people who don't understand the secret of contentment, we will not be able to make a profound impact for the gospel in the city and will eventually die and become a monument. The secret of contentment becomes contagious contagious because what it does is it leads people to an overwhelmingly sacrificial and generous lifestyle that the world sees And it draws them in because there they find their hope in Christ because they see 
their hope in Christ in front of them with believers. And so that's what we need integrity. We need to make a dent in the city for the gospel. And it begins with us understanding what it means to find true contentment in Christ, in Christ alone. The entire theme of Philippians is to encourage believers to find their true joy in Christ. And it's a fitting end to this letter that Paul would end it this way as saying, okay, if you want to find your true joy in Christ, you have to understand contentment. Paul had been with these people, this church in Philippi, for for just a few months. He'd made an impact on their lives, and they began to live their lives generously. They began to understand contentment in Christ, and they began to display that. Paul has been away from them for 11 years at this point. He's uh, in prison, which he's actually on house arrest. He was trained to a, a chain to a prison guard, and Paul was supported by these believers. They were content. They understood their identity in Christ, and so they began to look at their resources. They began to pour out their resources to help the gospel go forward, and one of those resources was Paul's ministry. Paul's ministry was able to flourish because the church of Philippi understood contentment and it overflowed into a lifestyle of generosity. Paul asked them for nothing, but they took generous special offerings that caused Paul to, to continue for the gospel even while he was on house arrest. And I love this because what Paul's doing is he writes the book of Philippians out of a response to their generosity. And I want you to see that. If it wasn't for the generosity of the church of Philippi, we wouldn't have the book of Philippians. It was written by by Paul saying, hey, I want to thank you for your gift and kindness of generosity. And I want to continue to challenge you to continue to have your joy in Christ because having joy in Christ, it overflows into this. I want, he's trying to make them see how their joy in Christ has overflowed to generosity and he's encouraging them to continue to do that. And so this is what we see. And so in, in this text, and this is where we begin to learn the secret of contentment. Look in verse 10. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You are indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I'm speaking of being in need, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am now to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In, every, in any and every circumstance, I have learned, what does he say? The secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then he says, a very famous verse, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, so here, out of the gate, we see this pretty popular verse, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. If you haven't grown up in church, you've probably heard this verse. It was probably used by a professional athlete. How did you do that? How do you run so fast? How do you jump so high? Well, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Now, is this what the verse means? Is this supposed to mean that Ben Tugwell can go in the gym, and as long as I believe this verse, I have this uncanny ability to now bench 400 pounds because I claim this verse in my life. Is that what this verse means? Does this mean that we can do anything? Does this mean that you, if you're 50 years old, you should quit your job and just go into the NFL combine and try out the NFL because you believe this verse and you tell whoever interviews you, man, I, be- I-, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Strength. 
I can do it. God said it. I believe it. It's going to happen. Is that what this verse means? Is that the context? What's the context about? The context of this verse has nothing to do with, okay, now because of Christ, you can do whatever you want. The context is about the secret of contentment. The entire theme of Philippians is to to encourage believers to have their identity in Christ. Look at verses 10 through 12. Paul is telling the Philippians how thankful he is for their support. But he also makes it clear that he's learned to be content even if they support him or even if they don't support him. Look at this. Verse 11. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I've learned, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in every and any, cir- any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and a hunger, hunger, abundance, and need. And then, after he says all that, is the famous verse, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ. So the point that Paul's making is not, because of Christ, you can do anything you want. The point is, through Christ, we have the ability to be thankful and have joy in any circumstance that he's placed you in. How do we know this? Because remember, Paul wrote these exact words when he was uh, imprisoned, when he was chained to a prison guard. So when we read, I can do all things through Christ, I want, I want us to read it not to believe that you can do anything you want. Rather, I want us to read it in the sense that you can endure with or without. You can endure with or without. Integrity Church, do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that if you don't get that job, you'll still love Christ? Do you believe if you don't get that house, you'll still love Christ? Do you believe if you don't get married, you'll still love Christ? Do you believe if you don't have kids, you still love Christ? And do you believe that if you do get those things, you'll still love Christ? Meaning those things won't replace Christ. That's what Paul is saying when he says, I can do all things through Christ. He's saying, in whatever situation, whether I've been given the thing that I think that I want, or I don't get the thing that I think that I want, I know that Christ is enough. I can endure in whatever situation. Are you tracking that? Tracking with me this morning. Sadly, we miss this point in our lives. We're often busy thinking about things that we don't have rather than praising Christ and being content in what we do have. So what do we do? We begin to look at others and we say, man, that person has a better TV than me. I need to have that TV. That person has a better house than me. I need to have that house. And so in better being content, what do we do? We covet. And the opposite of contentment is coveting. And coveting is a big deal in Scripture. You even see it in the Ten Commandments. You see the very last commandment that's given by Moses on Mount Sinai to the Israelites. He says, don't covet what your neighbor has. It's going to mess you up. If you covet what your neighbor has, you're only thinking about what you don't have rather than praising God for what he has given you. And so coveting is the opposite of contentment because it says, no, God, you didn't give me enough, so I'm jealous that they have more, so I'm going to be, show hatred towards them, and I'm going to make whole career choices based on my coveting. Instead of choosing a a job based on community and how I'm being fed by the Lord and how I'm growing in Christ, I'm now going to choose a job based on what gives me more stuff. I'm now going to choose a job based on, man, I've got to keep up with this other person that 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 I have to have everything that they have. What happens when we covet? We go, we buy things that we can't afford and we covet. 
We go into debt because we covet. And of course, there's nothing wrong with making money. Throughout Scripture, there's people in the Bible who are poor, who faithfully love Jesus, just as much as there are people who are rich, who faithfully love Jesus. And the Bible isn't about who is rich and who is poor. What God cares about is how well you steward what God's given you. In other words, it's God saying, what are you doing with what I have given you? And furthermore, what we see in Scripture is how you steward actually affects or impacts, a better word would say, how you steward reflects what you actually love. Now, here's my point this morning. Many people, when we talk about giving and we talk about stewardship, many people bow up. They can say, okay, up, pastor's talking about money. That's all they care about is money. Time I go to church, all they talk about is money. Let me tell you something. If you've been coming to Integrity Church, you can vouch for the fact that that's not all we talk about. In fact, we don't talk about it enough. Because here's, here's what I mean by that. We are, do our best because we know that many churches abuse the topic of money, and we don't want to be that church. We know that many abuse the church, abuse uh, the topic of money, so much so that the topic of money becomes like a stereotype. It's like every time you come on TV, oh, there's, there's a guy with the gold cufflinks, and he's on the throne, and his, you know, his wife's got like, cotton candy hair, and like, he's going to ask me for money, and he wants my money, and he wants me to give him money, and he's saying that it's going to go to this. I don't think it's going to that. I think he's going to his like, $8,000 suit. That's what I think it's going to. So the church is all about money. And so you, we, we do that, but here's the thing. Money actually reveals something about our hearts. Money is actually a discipleship topic. If you want to make disciples, we have to talk about what you treasure. Hey, I didn't say this. Jesus said this. Jesus, when he talks to his disciples, he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know what, what, you, what you really love, what you really prioritize? Look at how you spend your money. That's what Jesus is saying. This is one of the benchmarks of how we see the believers in Philippi were a maturing body of believers because of their generosity. We know of their contentment and their joy in Christ based on how they reflected that through how generous they lived their lives. Look at verse 14. He says, Paul says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help For my needs once and again. Here Paul is tracking back of 11 years of knowing the church of of Philippi. And he's saying, only you have shown this level of generosity to me. You've consistently given to me. And I'm so thankful. You're consistently giving to see the gospel go forward. And I am so thankful. And I love this because this is what generous people do. This is what content people do. When you're content, you begin to look at opportunities to serve others with what you have. And this is why Paul is so thankful. He's saying, man, I know that you you are content because you've consistently given that the gospel could go forward. And here's the interesting thing. Paul mentions there his time in Macedonia. And I don't know if you've read uh, in in 2 Corinthians in 8 and 9. It's an interesting place. Paul uses the church at Macedonia as an example of people who are generous. And he t- when he's talking to the church of Corinth, he's like, hey, I want you to be generous, but I want you to look at the church of Macedonia and look how generous they are. Look, I'll read it for you. In, in uh, 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 3, he says, I want you to know, brothers, this is Paul talking to the Corinthians now. He says, I want you to know, brothers, 
about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I, can, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. You see what's happened here? Paul is saying even in their poverty, they gave. They gave an abundance of joy in their extreme poverty and have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. The reason why the Macedonians are such a great example is because we can often in our minds get in the mindset of, okay, I'll be generous what God has given me, only when I make this amount. Once I make this amount, then I'm going to start being generous. What happens in Macedonia? They gave in their poverty. They gave. And the reality is, statistics show that how much money you make doesn't impact the percentage of how generous you are. In fact, statistics show that people will often give less the more money they make. And the reason why that is, is because we think that everything is ours, and we think that everything should be ours. And this is why it even gets messed up in the way that we talk about giving. We say, what did you give God? What did you give God? Do you know what that sounds like? It should be, it should be God gave to you, how much did you keep? You see, contentment flows from our understanding that we have nothing without Christ. We have nothing without Christ. And I love this because Paul is using the Macedonians as this example. Do you know why he could use the Macedonians as an example? Because the Philippians were generous to Paul who ministered to the Macedonians. And what happened when Paul ministered to the Macedonians? They heard the gospel and they became generous. Generosity becomes contagious when people get the gospel. Because when people get the gospel, we say, without Christ, I am nothing, and without Christ, I have nothing. And Paul understood this, and we see it even more in verse 17. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus, who was a friend of Paul's that corresponded between the church of Philippi and Paul. He says, I received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Then he uses these interesting words, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, uh, when, he, when he uses phrases like a fragrant offering, a sacrifice uh, acceptable, pleasing to God, these are, these are phrases of worship. He's saying, I'm thankful that you worship God in such a way that you gave to me. But notice he says, it's not that I seek the gift. Paul says, he, what does he seek? He says, I seek the fruits that increase, increases to your credit. This is how we know Paul is content, because Paul's joy in Christ is displayed because he doesn't love money. He loves what money can do for the sake of the gospel. He loves what, when people are generous, how they use money for the sake of the gospel. He's saying, man, I seek the, the fruit that increases to your credit. That's what I look forward to when you give to me to go, for the gospel to go forward. And this is a great test of contentment, friends. 
If you want to know if you're content, let me ask you this question. Do you see money? Do you see the resources as a tool for your happiness? Or do you see money and the resources that he's given you as a tool to help further the gospel? Here's another way to ask it. This is a more painful way to ask it. Do you worship money and use people? Or do you worship God and use money? And if we treasure Christ, we're content with him. We, see, we should see money as a tool to help further the gospel and not look at money as a primary means of joy. And if you're hearing me this morning and you're thinking, man, you're just trying to rob me. You're just trying to take from me. Let me just tell you this. If you are trying to find satisfaction in money, you are already being robbed. If your joy is in Christ, you won't care about money. You won't care about your house. You won't care about your iPhone. You won't care about anything else because everything else will pale in comparison to Christ. You'll begin to see them as temporary things that you'll only enjoy here on this earth. And it won't matter to you. It will not replace God for you. And if money becomes the place of God, if anything becomes in the place of God, it's robbing you of your joy. And so this morning, we have this tension because we're, we know that God has to give us things so that we can survive, right? We know that we have to have jobs and we have to get paid at those jobs so that we can take care of our families and we can take care of our children. We can hopefully put our kids through college or whatever it is that you have dreams to do. And there's nothing wrong with those dreams. There's nothing wrong with aspirations to make money for your family. Again, it's not about being rich or poor. It's about what you do with what God gives you and how you view it in light of the gospel. And so how do we balance this? Well, first of all, we have to understand that this the stewardship issue is a discipleship issue. And we have to think through this idea. And, I, and I'm not telling you to go and live this radical life and you have to live in a tent to really be a solid believer and prove that your joy is in Christ. I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. Notice earlier on in, in Philippians when we talked about Paul, one of the first ladies that Paul shared the gospel to in, in Philippi was a lady named Lydia, who was a wealthy woman. And Paul never said, hey, I want you to stop being wealthy. No, Paul would tell her to continue to have her to find her joy in Christ, not in what she has. Paul would sometimes stay at Lydia's house when Paul was with his other apostles sharing the gospel in different places. Paul would sometimes also stay in prison. And Paul was saying, listen, I've had filet mignon at Lydia's house, and I'm thankful for Christ, and I will take every bite for the glory of God. But I've also lived in ramen noodles and Taco Bell. And I'll eat that for the glory of God as well. He's saying, I've learned this secret of contentment, but understanding what it means to, be, to live high and be brought low. But I'm not going to find my identity, and I'm not going to find my hope, and I'm not going to find my joy in anything else. Everything that Paul sees in the book of Philippians, including money, including what we have in our wallets, deals with how you see it in light of the gospel. Chapter 1, he, said, he looks at friendships and fellowship. 
How do you see friendships? How do you see fellowship in light of the gospel? Chapter 2, he says, walk, he says how you walk in humility. Here, I want you to see how you see your pride and how you walk in humility in light of the gospel. Chapter 3, how you see your past, how you see your future. I want you to see your past and your future through the lenses of the gospel. Chapter 4, here's how you see circumstances. Here's how you see contentment. I want you to see circumstances. I want you to see contentment in light of the gospel. Everything has been about finding joy in light of the gospel. That's the whole book. This is not a better way to end this letter challenging believers. This is how you live sacrificially in light of the gospel. And so let's see how he closes this out. Verse, four, verse 19. Paul says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul's final words to the church helps us bridge this tough, difficult gap between how do we accept the resources that God has given us and how do we not idolize those resources but use them for the sake of the gospel. Notice how he says it. He says, God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and his glory in Christ. Notice he doesn't say, God will give you everything you want. He says, God will supply every need. And what Paul says here, it actually echoes something that Jesus says to his disciples. When Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, he says that we approach the throne of God saying, hallowed be your name. Everything you pray for, what Jesus is saying to his disciples, everything that you pray for I want you to exalt and lift up the name of Christ. And so what does he lift, lift, list off? He says, well, one of the prayers that you say, it says, Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. So we trust that you're sovereign. We trust that you're good. And then what's the next thing he says? Give us this day our daily bread. He's saying, give me food to live. Notice he says daily bread. He says, don't, don't give me excess. Give me my daily bread. Give me enough to live. And it's interesting the way that Jesus says these words. It actually echoes something that we see Solomon say in the Proverbs, in Proverbs 30, verse 7. He says, two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Verse 8, remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and still profane the name of my God. Now, I love this proverb because I love how honest he is. He says, God, just give me two things. First of all, remove falsehood from me. Don't let me be a liar. Don't let me walk around and lie to people. The second thing he says is, don't give me, give me just enough, but don't give me too much. Because God, if, if you give me too much, I might not need you. I might say, who's the Lord? I've got everything I need. He's like, don't give me too much. But he says, don't give me too little either because I might be tempted to steal something. I like that. Don't give me too much. Don't give me too little. Just give me the right amount. And what does Jesus tell his disciples? He says, look, when you pray, 
when you go before the Lord, I want you to say, man, hallowed be your name. I exalt your name. Your name is the most important thing. I want everything that I pray about to be about your name, about your glory, about furthering the gospel. And he says, so when you pray and you ask God to provide for you, give me my daily bread so that I can glorify your name. Just give me enough to help me glorify my name. And whatever I have beyond that, just help me to be generous and be able to give it away. Every request that Jesus is asking, he's saying, Lord, give me what I need to make much of Jesus. And give me what I need so, that other, so I can be generous so that others might see Jesus. And the way Paul ends Philippians, he's saying the exact same thing. God will give you what you need to live in the same way God will give you what you need to be generous. Friends, understanding this tension is really what it means to understand the secret of contentment. And throughout the the church, believers have learned this. Throughout the history of the church, believers have learned this. And this is why the church has continued to prevail throughout the centuries. And this is how the church will prevail in Greenville, by people learning the secret of contentment. Because when we understand the secret of contentment, that we find joy And we rejoice in the Lord through all circumstances and all situations, whether we're high or whether we're low. And we live our lives the outflow of generosity. And we began to really see what Christ did for us. What did Christ do for us? He became humble and he lived as a poor man. Christ became poor so that we would become rich. And so what do we do in response to that? We become poor so that others would be rich. We would go without so that others would have, see their joy in Christ. And that's what it means to live in light of the gospel. And so integrity, might this be us this morning? One of my favorite prayers on the issue of contentment is found in uh, a book called Valley of Vision. And Valley of Vision is, is a compilation of prayers written by Puritans in the 1600s. And I, I like reading these. I I read them occasionally in integrity, but I thought it'd be helpful for me as I close out this morning. I want us to just look at the valley of vision and the prayer of contentment. And my hope is that as I read this, may this be the echo of our own hearts when we think about living our lives in light of the gospel. It says, if I should suffer need and go unclothed and be in poverty, Make my heart prize thy love. Know it, be constrained by it, though I be denied all blessings. It is thy mercy to afflict and try me with wants. For by these trials I see my sins and desire severance from them. Lord, let me willingly accept misery, sorrows, and temptations. Anyone pray that recently? Lord, let me willingly accept miseries, sorrows, and temptations. If I can thereby feel sin as great as the greatest evil and be delivered from it with gratitude to thee, acknowledging this as the highest testimony of thy love. When I'm afraid of evils to come, comfort me by showing me that In myself, I am dying, condemned, wretch. But in Christ, I am reconciled and live 
that in myself I find insufficiency and no rest. But in Christ there is satisfaction and peace. That in myself I am feeble and unable to do good. But in Christ I have ability to do all things. What do you think he's reading there? Though now I have his grace in part, I shall surely have them perfectly in that state where thou wilt show thyself fully reconciled and alone, sufficient, efficient, loving me completely, with sin abolished. O Lord, hasten that day. You want to know where prayers like that come from? They come from a place where they realize that Christ owes us nothing. And Christ owes us nothing because he is everything. And we begin to come to that place. We would look at this world. We would look at everything that God has given us through the light lenses of the gospel. And then when we do that, it would overflow to a people who were generous. And that's my hope that we would be that integrity church. God help us. Let's pray. Jesus, you're so kind to us and you're so generous to us. And Father, if there's someone in this room who've never experienced that or known that,